midwife calling. Welcome to Poplar Opinion, a Call the Midwife podcast, where we talk about every episode of Call the Midwife, one by one, spoiler free. And the moment between when I say midwife calling and welcome to Poplar Opinion, Paul bobs his head to the imaginary music because we don't hear the theme song in our life, but he always (laughs) imagines it. I do bob my head to the imaginary music. And the people don't need to know that. <laughs> well, I thought they did this time. Welcome to Season 7. You're Jan Moffat? I already said that. Oh, and I'm Dr. Paul Moffat, not that kind of doctor. And this week we are talking about the Season 7 Christmas Special. This is the Christmas Special, just so we are clear, that comes in between Season 6 and Season 7. Even though, as I mention every time, CBC Gem places it at the end of season seven it really comes at the beginning of season seven before the rest of season seven if you're using some other app it might not do that annoying thing but it annoys me that gem does uh this episode was written by heidi thomas and directed by sid mccartney they are the writer director team that directed and wrote the final regular episode of season six which was the last episode we talked about they also did the seventh episode of season six together. Jan, do you want to take us through this episode? I sure do. The recap, that is, of this episode? Mature Jenny narrates about unwrapping and unfolding. Val talks to Violet about the Christmas pantomime, Jack and the Beanstalk, while Fred is acting as Father Christmas in the neighborhood. Trixie packs up for a vacation with Christopher in Switzerland and Sister Julienne presents the TV back to the house, and the whole group poses for a photo together. The next morning, snow has hit and everything is shut down. The clinic is moved to Val's aunt's pub, and Mr. Percy Tillerson shows up at the surgery for help with a burnt leg, and Dr. Turner assists him. A couple, Linda and Selwyn, arrive at the makeshift clinic in the pub, Linda confesses to Val that he's not the baby's father and they're unmarried and live in a caravan. Val is unfazed and promises to visit wherever they're parked. Trixie's trip to Switzerland is delayed and Christopher is stuck staying overnight at Donata's house. Phyllis crosses paths with a new police officer, Sergeant Wolfe, who is annoyed with her car taking up the road. Tom and Barbara cuddle in bed and he tells her about a position he's been offered in Birmingham but he's reluctant to take it. Trixie is embarrassed to have Christopher see her in her rollers. The (laughs) toilet breaks, and everyone is forced to use an outdoor toilet instead. Val goes to see Linda and Selwyn in their caravan, and Linda is unsure of her feelings for Selwyn, but he clearly loves her. This, of course, is a longer episode than normal, because it's a Christmas special, so there's a whole lot of stuff going on. Yeah. So, I mean... Because there's so much going on in the whole episode, and there's, there's, it's an extra long episode with a lot of stuff happening, your recap just covered a lot of the episode with a lot of different things happening. Where do you want to start? I mean, we could, I always ask that question, and then before I finish saying it, I think of an answer, which is, we'll start maybe talking about the uh, voiceover, Mm -hmm. as usual, which is, 
all about unwrapping things at Christmas, which... That's what we do. ...sets <laughs> up the theme of the episode. One of the major themes of the episode is secrets. mm mm-hmm. uh, And that's especially true, I think, in the last part of the episode. One of the plots that we haven't really uh, fleshed out yet, so I don't want to... I mean, no spoilers of the particular episode, I just don't want to get ahead of ourselves... But the last bunch of the episode is really about secrets and uh, yeah, unwrapping things... the past and coming back to things that have been buried and whether that's good or necessary or worthwhile or all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Is there, um, do you think that there's unwrapping and secrets and, and opening things up happening in this section so far? There's a little bit, the Linda and Selwyn story is a little bit about keep, is keeping some secrets and asking Val to kind of keep their keep their secrets. So I'd say that it starts off a little bit with that, but I don't think there's a whole lot. Not a ton. Do you want to talk about Linda and Selwyn right away? Sure, we can. So they come in and he says, oh, my wife is... They come in when they're having the, uh, the clinic in the pub. Mm-hmm. So they don't know where they're supposed to be because it's in an unusual place. And he says, oh, my wife, la, 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 la. And then she is very embarrassed to, like, he's not my husband. We're not married. And Val's like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's not even the father he's of the not. baby. And then that's he the He wants next. to marry me. It's the, like, he's not my husband. That's fine. But no, it's worse than you know. He's not even the father of the baby. And Val is still like, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but clearly Linda is upset about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And she's upset. So she's... Ashamed that she's not married. She's ashamed that uh, the man she's with isn't the father of the baby. She feels a dynamic that we've seen before that, like, he wants to marry her and says that he will love her and the baby and she doesn't believe him because she doesn't feel lovable. Mm-hmm. She exactly. I mean, she never quite says that out loud, but we can really see it in a lot of the things she says and does, that she doesn't feel like she deserves to be loved by him, so she doesn't love him back. Which just makes it even more that she doesn't deserve to be loved by him. And the baby won't deserve to be loved by him because it isn't his baby. And so she's unhappy for all those reasons and doesn't feel worthy. Yeah. Plus, living in a caravan makes her feel financially unworthy as well. Yeah. That they're not, like, proper people to be coming there with a baby. They're, like, just temporarily or you know, getting on their feet kind of thing. Did we hear ever where they were from? I missed if, that if they did. If we did, she said that he was a roofer in there where they were from. I think she said it briefly, but I didn't write it down. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember. It seems like a ways away. but Yeah. They sure don't seem to have any connections. In no, Poplar. not at all. And speaking of, they were going all backwards uh, this time, but I don't mind at all. Because speaking of people who are in not their home, um, the clinic in the pub mm-hmm. is kind of the same thing as uh, Linda in a caravan. That like they don't have their real home, they don't have their real place. They're making do in some place that isn't going to be where they permanently are, and they're misplaced. Mm-hmm. And the other case of that is Christopher, who is staying at the, at Nanata's house because there's snow and the roads are closed and he's not there forever. But for, in this section, he is sleeping in the guest room 
Um, there's a few <laughs> shenanigans that happen with that. Uh, you mentioned there's like a couple of things about Christopher staying there, right? That like all the nuns are so excited to have him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is adorable, actually. Yep. They're like he the uh, uh, car isn't moving until he comes and helps to push the car, and they're all like, "Oh, what an amenable gentleman! Oh, <laughs> he's so good." And then we have. Trixie, Christopher, Sister Winifred, and Val playing musical chairs. Oh yeah, yes. And, uh, Sister Monica Joan, Sister Julianne is running the the <laughs> record, and Sister Monica Joan and is like watching, and they're all like laughing, and oh, this is so much fun, so much better than like anything else we could be doing. We're doing all these this fun games, and uh, Trixie, Christopher, Sister Winifred, and Val are all like acting their little hearts out like nothing could be more fun yeah. than four adults playing musical chairs. <laughs> and then we just have Christopher to uh, Trixie, help me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they're supposed to be in Switzerland. Like, they're not... <laughs> they're supposed to be in Switzerland skiing, and instead they're playing musical chairs in the, with the nuns. And he, they're like selling it. And I, it was really funny, that scene, because I was like, is this... Is the show telling us that the four of them playing musical chairs is, like, enormous fun and the actors are just trying hard to sell it to us, the audience? And then that help me line is like, no, that's Christopher and Trixie in character being like, "Wee!" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which makes it so much better. Yep. I mean, it would be funny can, anyway. But. Can we talk about Trixie and Christopher for a second? Which is that I... Christopher is such a better match for Trixie than Tom was because mm. we have her them like they're whisking off to Switzerland, which of course is exactly Trixie's thing. And when she's planning her outfits, she's like bringing strappy sandals and things to go. And they're like, "Aren't you going skiing and stuff?" She's like, "We have après ski." Yes. And I and Christopher happens to like these sandals and things like that. And like that's exactly Trixie, you know, like she likes that she's a fully rounded person and part of her personality is liking things like being whisked off to Switzerland and it's disappointing to her that she has to stay home but also when she does have to stay home she rolls up her sleeves and doesn't take vacation and doesn't pout she joins in so it's it's really a her full-on person her full personality is on display here of like she's not just a flighty girl who wants to fly off to switzerland she likes that kind of thing as well as she can be a full midwife and care deeply about her community and not Mm -hmm. be just a silly girl i love like one of the moments that really shows that is when she cancels her holiday and then they're like, oh, do you want, uh, we have some extra thermal drawers. Yes. <laughs> and she says, I think I have s- sacrificed enough. Yeah. <laughs> that, to me, is such a, an essential moment of, like, all parts of Trixie's character. She is willing to. And even, and like, without pouting, and maybe she, I'm sure she feels sad, but she shows no resentment. Like, you need me. I'm here. I'm going to cancel my, my holiday. I'm going to do the work with a, you know, smile. But, like... I'm not going to sacrifice fashion yes, any more exactly. than I have to. Exactly. I'm not going to wear thermal drawers. That is a sacrifice. Someone offering her thermal drawers is not someone doing her a kindness. It's asking her to do a further sacrifice. And we have a little earlier, also, the like, there's this 
a back and forth with her and Val through the episode of like Trixie being like, I'm really cold. And Val being like, serves you right. Yeah, You're not exactly, dressing warm. Exactly. I'm, I'm 100% on Val's side here. But like she wakes up in the morning and like I'm freezing. And Val's like, well, serves you right for not wearing a vest. And she's like, I don't have a vest. I thought two silk uh, camisoles <laughs> would be enough. <laughs> would be the same. And that is right before she walks out into the hallway and sees Christopher in a frilly pink house coat. Yep. <laughs> very frilly. And Christopher saw her in her rollers and it's yeah. a scandal to her. <laughs> to her. It's not a scandal scandal. It's a like... <gasps> oh no, he's oh not no. me in my rollers. And Val, practical Val, like, well, he's a scientist. He knows your hair isn't <laughs> just like that. <laughs> Yeah, I like that too. That whole exchange is so great. It is. It's lovely. Uh, speaking of outfits, I found it interesting how uh, Barbara wears a, mm. a wool hat to come over. I call it a toque because I'm Canadian, but a wool hat to come over from her house. And there's a comment like, oh, is that a new part of the uniform? And she's like, no, I just wore it over the street. And like, they can't wear a hat. Wear a hat. Like, they can't. Be nice and warm in between going to houses. Like, this does not make sense to me at all. If you're going to live in a place that gets cold weather, you shouldn't... You should be able to bundle up between houses. Like, it's one thing to have a uniform. It's another thing to, like... Your ears will freeze off. Too bad for you. You have to show your nurse's cap. Yep. This is illogical to me, but I don't live in the 60s or whatever. So, the cap... I mean, we will. There's a minor plot about uh, knit caps and yes. veggie in kind of the next bit, but let's talk about since you brought it up. They have to. They should be allowed to wear warm caps if you're going to live somewhere where it's that cold. You should wear warm things. We. Ha- How cold is it? This is the Great Freeze. This is the big cold. Uh, the historically coldest uh, winter in England or in London. I forget the number of years, but, like, for decades before or after. Mm -hmm. How we live in a cold place. Yes. (laughs) How cold is it? Like, do you want to talk about the cold? Yeah. The cold snap and what that means uh, comparatively to us and, like, what it means for the characters? That's true. I I don't... Did you look up the temperatures? Do you know? Okay. Well, I also will say that the snow in this episode is the fakest snow I have (laughs) ever seen. It is hilariously fake i mean snow on tv is often quite fake there's parts throughout if you don't if you don't experience snow then you may not know how incredibly fake tv snow is it's so bad the snow doesn't do that at all there's also parts that i'm i had a note of it later when going along with when it happens but since you mentioned it i'm going to mention it now that like they keep digging in the snow with bare hands yeah and like Walking across the street without a toque because it's not your uniform is one thing. If you dig in the snow with your bare hands, you will get frostbite and lose your fingers. Yeah. Like, you just do not do that. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So, anyway. So, what was the temperature, Paul? Hit me with it. They say... I didn't look up the historical temperature. I just looked up what they say on the screen, on the show. Yeah. I paid attention to what they say on the show. They say that it is minus five degrees and two feet of snow. So I assume that is Fahrenheit because minus five degrees Celsius is not very cold. Like it's below freezing, but it's like 
not uncomfortably cold, even in, like, just a wool overcoat. But minus 5 degrees Fahrenheit is minus 15 Celsius. That's fairly standard around here for winter, and St. John's isn't especially cold in Canada. Uh, minus 15 is, like, getting cold here, but it's... Yeah, that's pretty Nothing cold. Really. Especially in the in the damp cold, like we have yeah. damp cold here. Fifteen is pretty cold. Minus yeah. fifteen here is when it gets very cold. I remember I always compare things, you know, when we lived in Winnipeg, it genuinely got to thirty or forty below. Yep. Um, but it was dry cold and everyone was prepared for it. And even here, it gets to fif- minus fifteen every winter. That's fairly standard, but we have insulation and good heating, and everyone wears warm winter coats and knows how to wear gloves. Yeah, so, exactly. So, uh, minus five. Later, they say... Later, I think Reggie says that it gets to 15 below, mm-hmm. which is, like, 25, which is quite cold. Like, fair enough, very cold. Five degrees below Fahrenheit and two feet of snow. Two feet of snow is a lot by anyone's standard. Mm-hmm. Like, five degrees is, well, if you don't have warm coats and you don't have insulation, that's pretty cold. But two feet of snow is a lot of snow, no matter where you are. Like, yeah, yeah. we have more than two feet of snow right now, and it is brutal. <laughs> it's awful. We've had an extremely snowy winter, and, I mean, St. John, Newfoundland gets snow like nowhere else. I mean, there, like a few other places, but... The way it falls fast and a ton of it. We have had 70 centimeters of snow, which is however many feet. I don't know, like 100,000 feet. (laughs) Look it up, quick. Do some conversions for the Americans. 70 centimeters is little more than two feet of snow. Oh, wow, okay. 2.3 feet of snow. So, like, when they say two feet of snow, that's what we got. What we got. Okay. And imagine. Yeah, you like, don't have... We have plows, we have snow blowers, we have yeah. all kinds of things to get us out. And even then, that two feet of snow is so much and yep. so hard to deal with. Just mm-hmm. imagine, like, if you didn't... weren't used to it and didn't have the infrastructure to handle it. Mm-hmm. And so it's lots of snow, lots of cold, and two real practical things that happen uh, in this episode mm-hmm. are the community center gets a, has a burst pipe... Which is a very, very something that happens when there's a cold snap. Mm-hmm. Even places where you are prepared for cold snaps. Because if the pipes aren't insulated properly, then the water inside freezes and the pipes burst. And that happened... I mean, our house, our pipes have never burst. But they've frozen. But they've frozen more than once. And we know that it's going to get cold and it still happens, right? So the pipes burst and the electricals are damaged and everything is flooded... Uh, and then the other thing that happens is the roads are snowed in and there aren't deliveries. And in particular, there's milk. Yeah. Through the whole episode, we have no milk for tea, no milk for... They put a lot of emphasis on tea, but also, like, babies need milk. Children need milk. Children need milk. British people need milk because it goes in tea. (laughs) Exactly. So early in this episode, there's no milk. And that continues through the whole episode. Mm -hmm. All right. So we've sort of set the scene here. Let's talk about uh, a couple more people before we move on to our next section, which is Tom and Barbara. Yeah. So Tom and Barbara are now married. Barbara has kind of a new hairdo, which is like, I think of her little like married lady do. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
We get to see them cuddling in bed, but they're discussing what's going to happen with their lives because Tom has just been a curate and he wants like a parish of his own, but he's been offered yet another curacy, which is a temporary appointment, basically. And in Birmingham, which is far away. So he is deciding what he wants to do. And I found it really interesting that like, Barbara will just go along with him no matter what he decides. This is like the sacrifice of marriage for her. She has a job here still. She's still working as a midwife. Yeah, and And there's not... Yeah. In the episode, a lot of the episode uh, in terms of their plot is about him deciding what he wants to do. And there just is not even one conversation about we will decide what we will do. Yeah, not at all. It is like she gives her opinion of what he should do that is best for him. Mm -hmm. And then when he decides, that's what will happen to the two of them as a unit. Yeah. And that even in their, like, even in their bedroom behind closed doors between the two of them, the conversation is all about, like, he, I'm a curate here. Is God calling me to be a curate there? A curate, just in case we're unclear, a vicar is a permanent like the priest in charge and a curate is the assistant priest. So the curacy in Birmingham would be temporary. You can be a permanent curate, but even if you're permanent, you're an assistant to Mm -hmm. the real priest in charge. So we don't ever see the vicar here in Poplar, but uh, Tom as the curate is an assistant Mm -hmm. officially, which means paid as an assistant and not like vicars make tons of money anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, even behind closed doors in their bedroom, the conversation is not ever, even once, what is best for you also. Mm-hmm. It is like, what do, is God calling me to do and why and how can I do my work and where will I go for my to balance, you know, my money and career and also God's work and what God wants me to be and the community that I'm connected to. From both of them, that's mm-hmm. the conversation. Absolutely. I think that it is difficult for me to see that and maybe and for us, you know, in a modern context to see that, but I think it definitely women assumed in themselves and were assumed to like you might work before you get married, but once you're married, then you'll, you know, you'll stay home with the kids and so if I'm going to move jobs, it doesn't matter that you have a job because you weren't going to have a job for much longer anyway. We saw this back with Chummy. You might work as a married woman before you have a baby. And like, I think about my own mother, who was a nurse, uh, and she worked in their early, my parents' early married life, and then once she got pregnant... She stopped working. She didn't work for years until I was in kindergarten and then uh, kind of did a refresher course on nursing and went back to work part time. Like it basically was like, in fact, she's told the story of uh, my sister, my older sister was four and going to kindergarten the next year. And my mom was like, well, we I either need to go back to work or we need to have another baby. And they opted to have me, (laughs) which I'm very grateful for. And then after I was in school, she went back to work. So like, and I do feel like that is the trajectory for Barbara, Mm -hmm. who is of a similar age to my mom. It just, the, the thing that throws me so much is not 
as much an expectation that when they have, when uh, Chummy or Barbara or uh, Sheila have a baby that they will stay at home and not work, um, that seems exactly what I would expect from the 50s, 60s. But it's the, like, what is best for you, uh, Barbara, does not come up even once mm-hmm. in our consideration of whether we move to Birmingham. Yeah. Even behind closed doors. And it's not just what's best for your career. It's like, in general. Yeah. The entire conversation both of them have is what's best for Tom. Yes, that's so true. Yeah. Not what she will do in Birmingham. Uh, like, that just doesn't cross either of their minds. Yeah. Uh, we'll have more about uh, Barbara and uh, Tom through the episode, although it's a fairly minor plot. Mm-hmm. The other minor plot is with Phyllis in this episode. I guess there's more than one minor plot more. But uh, Phyllis is driving around in the car and she, uh, it's snowy and, and rough and they, they come along and there's a cop directing traffic. Uh, Sergeant Wolf. Sergeant Wolf. I, I first referred to him in my notes as o- Officer Walrus Face. <laughs> he has a bit, he's a, he's a memorable walrus mustache. Yeah, exactly. And a portly body type <laughs> that together really do make him look like very walrusy. Yeah. Uh, and he stops the car. We're advising motorists to turn left. And, oh, okay, that's because it's snowy. Oh, that, that sounds safe. And then he keeps going because it's not safe for unskilled drivers. And Phyllis bristles. <laughs> when, if he had just stopped yeah. for advising motorists to turn left, it's not safe. But for unskilled drivers, drivers. Phyllis is like, well, I, I, now that you have said that, I am going this way. I am a member of the Institute of Advanced Motorists. <laughs> and I, oh, are you a member of the Institute of Advanced Motorists, Phyllis? This is brand new information. <laughs> she loves the chance to tell people that she's a member of the Institute of Advanced Motorists. It's also funny because, like... Do you not remember when you hit a kid? Like, I thought she was shaken a little bit in her advanced motorist thing, but apparently not. (laughs) There are chains on the tires, and she's an advanced motorist, and she can travel to to the left, even if it is snowy. And then the next scene we see is the car is stalled and Christopher is pushing it. (laughs) And there's no comment on that, really. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, the cop reappears and makes some snide, some, like, snide illusion. Like, get that car off the road no matter how advanced you are. Yeah. But, like, what happened to the car? We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> Something, though. That was, yes, a very humorous Maybe exchange. that was a cutscene, but if it's so, no, it's kind no. of better as a cutscene. No, it's, it's just good. <laughs> um, so then, so there's this tension. Phyllis has a new enemy. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other t- minor thing that I don't really have much to say about, but we could maybe mention, is there's the pantomime and all of the kerfuffle around that will get yeah we'll get more to that later more to it later oh and uh sister winifred tries to uh clear the ice out of a toilet by smashing it with a mop handle and breaks the toilet, the toilet. And, like what honestly were you expecting to happen <laughs> sister like honestly yeah i don't know i was surprised that christopher didn't stop her when he went in but he's not a fred and he doesn't like he might not know either he does <laughs> fix it eventually with boiling water he is the one who fixes it boiling water he fixes the, the outdoor toilet. Yeah, well, it's he the didn't... same. That would have. Oh, so yeah. He fixes the toilets. Yeah. Uh, by pouring boiling water in, which is what you should have done to the indoor one too. Yeah, exactly. 
just the the idea of going to sit on a toilet in the outdoors when it's that cold out just fills me with a sense of dread that I can't even name. <laughs> so cold. Um, all right, let's move on to our next recap here. Go ahead. Trixie and Dr. Turner deliver a New Year's baby to Dillis, who has her little girl just before midnight. Poplar continues to suffer from lack of milk and then lack of water as well. Fred discovers a body in the snow. It's Percy Tillerson, who froze while getting paraffin. Sister Julienne goes to tell his wife, Mabel, only to find her on the brink of freezing to death herself. After warming up, Mabel shares Percy's abuse and is not unhappy about his death. She also tells Sister Julianne about her children, one who has died and the other estranged. The Turners look up the medical records to discover her daughter Althea was pregnant at 15 when she ran away. Val goes to Linda, who is in early labor. She struggles to deliver in their tiny caravan, but eventually gives birth. The baby boy is not moving, and the couple grieves. Trixie arrives to assist and comfort comforts Val. When Val takes the baby's body away, Selwyn puts in a hot water bottle with him. As she arrives at Nanatus, the baby cries and is revived. Tom is called, but by the time he arrives, the child does not need an emergency christening after all. The now-alive baby is brought to a shocked Linda and Selwyn, and they name the baby after Selwyn's middle name, John. Let's, this time, do some minor things first. Yep. Uh, I There's a little moment that you didn't mention in the recap, but that happens in this section, which is, speaking of mothers staying home, uh, giving up their jobs... Uh, when they have a new baby, uh, yes, Sheila, Sheila is home with Teddy, is home with Teddy. And they, there's like a minor plot about that, that, that goes through the whole back half of the episode, but mm-hmm. it starts here with her talking in the morning. She's like made breakfast for them. And, and, uh, Patrick is like, Oh, you didn't have to make a fancy breakfast. And she's like, well, I have so much energy. I've, I've been doing so much better. I'm so glad I didn't listen to that American Spock. I listened to uh, some British... Truby King. Truby King, yeah. I I recognized the name but didn't write it down and then couldn't remember it later. Uh, I listened to Truby King. 15 minutes per breast is exactly the right thing to do. And then Tim is like, "Um, I have to go stand outside the freezing cold and look at a thermometer and not listen to you talk about your breasts anymore, please. Yeah, poor Timothy. That is such a funny moment of Tim being like, I gotta go. I did do a little looking up about Truby King and that American Spock, who is Dr. Benjamin Spock. Uh, Truby King... uh, True enough, had opinions on child feeding and whatnot, was around in the turn of the century in Britain, and uh, was anti-Semitic and a eugenicist, and certainly Sheila should not be listening to him. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but was it very much encountered to that American Spock, who was about breastfeeding on demand and attachment parenting, and... Oh, no, so not, not attachment parenting, but about... Uh, yeah, elite listening to your baby fed child, weaning baby, and baby. breastfeeding on demand and yeah things uh, like that. But uh, yeah, basically, Truby. When I looked up Truby King, it was like this guy's awful, and I'm like, wow, okay, that's who Sheila's <laughs> listening to. <laughs> In this section, there is a lot of like time passes, mm-hmm. right? Uh, 
the cold snap at the beginning is like, oh, it's really cold and things are hard. And then we have this little montage of, like, the calendar, Pat, uh, um, Phyllis changing the days on the calendar. Yeah, and it's not getting any better. The cold is still there. The milk is still not there. We have lived through cold snaps and it's, like, I agree. It's when it goes on and on that it's, like, so brutal. Yeah, exactly. handle a day of freezing cold Mm -hmm. or even two or three it's the like again and again it goes on and on there was a couple of years ago a cold snap in newfoundland that was not it was a mix of a cold snap and then there was a power failure Mm. and there was days of no power in the whole island really yeah certainly in our apartment and it was freezing cold and it was you know, the first day, fine. And then it got colder in our apartment. And then it got colder in our apartment. Mm-hmm. And then it you can't, there's no heat. We ended up the last day of it, like spending the whole day in all four of us in bed, cuddled under every blanket in our house. Yeah. Uh, our kids were quite small when that happened, so we could all fit in the bed together. <laughs> yeah. When did I remember that? And it being, yeah, the like... Going on and on is what was so Yeah, it was brutal. the worst part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we hear about people dying from the uh, cold. Mm-hmm. We see a, a specific case that I want to hold off on for a sec, but I because I want to talk about him and that whole story uh, mm-hmm. all at once. But... Uh, there's lots of little things about the cold. Like there's a burst, there was a burst pipe before and now there's a burst sewer. Yeah. The milk still isn't there and now there's also no water. Mm-hmm. Uh, that like all the things about the cold and the snow is like just gotten worse. And that f- the feeling that we get is of Poplar being like cut off from the rest of the world with no, f- and probably all the places are cut off from each other, mm-hmm. but we don't see them. Yeah, like, exactly. They get no milk. They have no water. The sewers are burst. You can't leave because there's so much snow. The shops are closed. They're like, I, I, you know, we've experienced that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, the, also this kind of signal that time has passed as well as we started at Christmas time and then we have Trixie and Dr. Turner delivering a New Year's baby mm-hmm. of like, there's no significance to that woman or that baby at all besides to show like time has passed, there yeah, continues to be births now. and we have a New Year's baby. I was going to say, I didn't even put her in my notes because is there anything about that birth that you have? Not really much. Anything to say? No. Just that it is on New Year's. Yeah. There's a little plot that the assistant in the surgery doesn't come into work, maybe because she's flighty, maybe because of the snow, maybe because Dr. Turner doesn't bother to learn her name. Yep. (laughs) So Sheila decides to come in and work. Uh, There's a whole, like, I'm just going to comment. There's a whole little scene of her struggling to get her girdle on. And I'm like, that's kind of indecent for a former nun (laughs) on TV and her all together. Tut tut. Um... (laughs) But then she comes in anyway, despite yeah. having, and like, conveniently, this is, we don't, we don't spoil, but I'll maybe say, because it's a pattern that we've seen before, that like, the Turner children are uh, very conveniently disposed of whenever they need to dispose of yes, them. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Where are the kids? Oh, they're somewhere. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> Timothy's in charge, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> so I think we have... 
stalled on the major plots. Yeah. Long Do you so want to go? Let's talk about Percy Tillerson to start because we didn't really mention him in the first recap. He was no. there. He comes to Dr. Turner because he's burnt his leg on the paraffin. And what I find most interesting about that is he seems like a perfectly pleasant man. He has like mm-hmm. a very nice conversation with Dr. Turner. Yes. There is absolutely no indication that he's going to end up being kind of the villain of the piece. Yeah. I'm I am glad we didn't like I I didn't bring it up on purpose. I'm glad yeah. we didn't talk about it before because exactly the same thing is what I want to talk about here that like he the the things with him um Fred finds his frozen body. He has died in the snow mm-hmm. of being of like getting disoriented in the fr- in the snow and dying of hypothermia and frozen solid and it's really gruesome and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but and we recognize him when we see him. When he came in with the burned leg, he was nice and mm-hmm. likable. Yeah, like uh, a charming actor. You know, oh, I didn't want to bother you, but I have this burn and it's like bad. Uh, and he's quite likable in that little scene and Patrick mm-hmm. likes him and when we see him frozen we're I, sad yeah we're, we're sad. like oh no I think our reaction I've seen this episode before but I had forgotten about him and so I even have in my notes oh no it's the guy with the leg burns like I'm so sad that he's dead because he was nice and I liked him and then they're like other shoe drops yep we get we it is like a misdirect, uh, but I think really fairly done. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they're lying to the audience. Um, they're just taking us along the character's perspectives that Patrick likes him and should because he's likable. Mm-hmm. And Patrick is sad to see him dead because he's a person, but also because he's someone that he knew that came in and like he has a little bit of a personal... Uh, I'm sure Patrick is sad whenever a uh, patient dies, but like... I just met him and liked him and, you know, all. And then Sister Julienne is like, we got to tell his wife. And she goes and then there's another misdirect that like, oh no, she's going to be dead too. And they have to break down the door and she's alive. But instantly, like as soon as she starts talking, she's like, I did what you said. I'm like, what is... What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And my first thought was like, did he tell her to freeze to death because he wasn't going to be able to protect her? Is this like a suicide pact? Um, and then later, Sister Julianne is like, it's probably because you weren't wearing, uh, you know, you weren't wearing warm enough clothes. And she says, oh, Percy doesn't like to see flesh of women. Like He doesn't like me not to be covered up. I don't know any of the neighbors because Percy doesn't let me leave the house. Why is the door open? Percy doesn't like people looking in. Percy doesn't like me having any neighbors. And the more we hear, mm-hmm. it's like, what? She is uh, not. He represents her to Patrick as a shut in for her health or, or like she doesn't leave. But in just a few lines of uh, seeing her, we see that he has shut her in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have visitors because he doesn't want anyone to see her or her to see anyone. And then when she hears that he has died, she says, uh, Percy liked to be the one who said who did what. Uh, it sounds like he had no say at all in how he met his end, and I'm glad. Mm-hmm. 
And like That's we, chilling a little bit, but it is also chilling. Like, for someone to be such a abusive person that she's just well, I'm glad he's dead. Yeah. I think like this Percy is or this situation um what was her name? Mabel? Mabel. I always call her Mrs. in my notes. Mabel. Um is not the first uh, victim or survivor of abuse that we met in the show, and Percy's not the first abuser we've met in the show at all. But usually when we meet abusers, it is obvious at once. They are mm-hmm. bad and rotten, horrible people. And I think it is upsetting, but I think good upsetting. Like, from a storytelling perspective, appropriately upsetting. To have him be friendly and likable when we first meet him. Mm-hmm. Because... Not all abusers are like the, what's his name with the uh, kid with the glasses who is yeah. like always carrying boxing gloves around his neck, who is like, see him across the street and think that's a violent abuser. Yeah. Like, everyone Percy meets probably thinks that he's a friendly, likable guy. Mm-hmm. Because that's the face he shows in public. Yeah. That's so upsetting. In a way that I'm, like, I think is really well done as a show, as a story. And the shoot, like, the uh, revelations continue to drop throughout the episode. So it's like, we get moment one, Mabel talks about him being controlling. Mm -hmm. And then... we he she talks with Sister Julianne about her children and how her son, uh, she thought he could take anything because... He had taken Percy's abuse, so but so she was so surprised when he died in the war. It turned out of sickness, and then her daughter, she's like, "Oh, she ran away," and then oh, they find the medical records. Her daughter, she was pregnant when she ran away. Her mother was there to find out she was pregnant, and still, and didn't, and clearly didn't do anything. It's yeah. just and the like. The, you know, the pa- the medical history shows she, you know, you know, fell down the stairs, ran into doors, the kind of standard excuses for abused women. So, like, the signs were there, but no one was seeing them, and he was keeping her shut in. And, and, we, as an, of, and we as an audience come along that journey of revelation, which exactly. is a fascinating storytelling. Exactly. The, like, the signs were there, they didn't see them, and the way that they frame the storytelling that we meet Percy first is that like we didn't see them yep we exactly meet him. we had a chance to meet him we didn't say oh that guy beats his kids and uh sexually assaults his chick his kids mm-hmm. uh, like I think it is so uh well done storytelling and exactly as you say that like he gets worse and worse and worse uh and it doesn't it isn't like slowly but, like, we see more and more, and the more we see, the more horrible he is. Yep. Um, and we have to keep reconciling that with the picture that we started with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's really upsetting, but it I think it's really so well done. Yeah. So, meanwhile, we have the other very major and upsetting Ooh. moment of the episode is Linda goes into labor... Uh, seems like early. Four weeks early. La- Four weeks early, Val yeah. arrives and like a wellness check and Linda's yeah. already in labor. So Linda hasn't called for help. Val happens to come. Uh, the baby's four weeks early. 
Val, as we have seen her before, is like very confident and reassuring and like everything's going to be fine. And the whole labor, it's another like misdirect of what the conflict is because we think that the conflict is going to be uh, Linda doesn't love Selwyn. Selwyn says he's going to love the baby, but maybe he won't because it's not his baby. And which is a conflict we've seen before. Like, this is a mm-hmm. personal conflict of, like, who can love each other in this family of three. And Val is so reassuring and, like, you're doing great. Everything is fine. There's no reason to suspect in the way that Val is treating her that things are not going to go well. The baby's four weeks early, but Val is like, that's nothing we can't handle. We'll be totally fine. And then the... Uh, baby is born and in I think when this aired it was all just one episode but on the uh, CBC app gem app it is separated into part one and part two mm-hmm. and the break between part one and part two is when the baby is born but we don't know whether he, he's okay mm. which is like the worst possible break because he is not okay yeah so the baby is born it's a boy and he's beautiful break we come back oh but he's uh not hold on a second you can't hold him and val's like cheery uh reassuring face falters Mm -hmm. and the baby's not like she checks it for breathing she flicks its foot she tries she gives like mouth to mouth yeah and it is not it's stillborn and uh it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. like it's heartbreaking yeah as and, and trixie arrives to yeah because she realizes this wasn't just a wellness check something more is going on and thank goodness trixie is there because trixie has experience with this mm. knows and uh can reassure val but also do the practical things while val tries to recover mm-hmm. i love the moment when she's like this is one of the worst things to happen to a midwife and she, it's not didn't happen to me it happened to them yeah yeah and also in that same little exchange trixie is you know do you need anything val and val's like if you say one kind word to me i'll go to pieces mm-hmm. <laughs> i lo- i like like i've seen this episode before and i know what happens uh so, you know, you already said in your recap, the baby is not dead. But even knowing what happens, this whole thing is, like, just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't give any clue that this isn't just a stillborn baby. And then the couple uh, has to grieve and Val has to grieve Mm-hmm. And we really linger on all of their grief. Yeah, and Linda for like, I didn't, she, Val takes the baby away and she's like, I didn't end up holding him and she's regretting that. And Selwyn looks at him and Linda won't look. Mm-hmm. I can, you know, I get it. Mm-hmm. And then the episode is the biggest emotional roller coaster of like any episode of Call the Midwife. Yes. Because as because Selwyn puts a water a hot water bottle in Okay, first of all, Val putting the baby in her bag is just like 
Mm-hmm. Horrible. Mm-hmm. And then Selwyn puts a hot water bottle in because it doesn't seem right sending a baby out to be cold, whether it's alive or dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but that hot water bottle warms him up. And Val, doing mouth-to-mouth, did inflate his lungs, but she didn't know. It was just a tiny bit. And Val is walking, like, her doing her morning walk. Uh, M-O-U-R. Morning walk in the dark back towards Nanata's house. And it's cold, and uh, she is so sad. And then the baby in her bag starts crying. Yeah. <laughs> Holy, holy emotional roller coaster. Yeah, exactly. That like, Val, uh, when they take the baby in, you, um, it, it is fine. Yeah. Right. Uh, there's other, there's like, reasons why, but it's fine. Yeah. And then there's the scene of Val like sitting on the stairs, and Barbara comes in not knowing anything that has happened. It's like, what happened? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Val is just like sobbing. It's the same. It's like you say one kind word to me and I'll go to pieces. The baby isn't dead. It's like the mix of relief and guilt and uh, all the grief that she didn't let herself feel. She now can let herself feel because it, gets undone mm-hmm. <laughs> but it isn't undone it's still there the like emotional com- uh depth of that moment and that like i was sobbing along with her yes exactly the, like, i'm trying to articulate why it is that like i felt a choke in my throat with the baby dead but i sobbed when the baby was alive yeah exactly just like Val did. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a thing I feel like in the Christmas specials that there tends to be kind of miraculous things that happen. And this mm. is very, and like, and a lot of things, like the whole show is about birth, but there tends to be more Christ imagery in mm-hmm. Christmas episodes. And so a uh, resurrection, a young unmarried mother, and then a resurrection of her baby is very much is along these religious themes as well. And so like, of course the Christmas special is the time when you would have a stillborn that wasn't actually a stillborn. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) Oh, and so emotional. So emotional. All right. Should we move into our last recap? Take it away. Phyllis commissions the cubs to build an igloo, but once it's constructed, Sergeant Wolf commands her to knock it down. Sister Julian finds Althea, Mabel's daughter, and gets the full story of Percy's abuse. She refuses to see her mother and attend the funeral. Later, Mabel tells Sister Julian about her failures to escape Percy. Tom resurrects the pantomime as a goodbye, that as he and Barbara will be going to Birmingham. The milk crisis continues as the dairy struggles to give out milk due to the lack of bottles. Phyllis takes control of the crowd and commissions the scouts to find the lost bottles. Sister Julian visits Althea again, who has just had her baby, and manages this time to convince her to meet her mother on less formal terms. They meet at the pantomime and reconcile. The panto is performed, ending with Paul and Barbara slipping out the door just before the end. Paul and Barbara? Barbara and Tom. Did I not, did I say 
Paul and Barbara? You did. Wow, that was a weird glitch in my brain. (laughs) (laughs) The panto was performed, ending with Barbara and Tom slipping out the door before the end. There's no Paul in this. No. (laughs) Only you. (laughs) Only me. I want to talk first about um, something you didn't mention at all in any of your recaps. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can only recap so much. It's a really long episode. There is so much. (laughs) I know that's not a, a, like, criticism of your recaps at all. You would... It's an hour and a half episode. Our episode is going to be an hour and a half. If you were going to recap everything, our episode would be three hours. Mm -hmm. But Sister Monica Joan, through this whole episode, there are... uh, There's a whole thread of Sister Monica Joan through the whole episode. It starts with, early on in the episode, we have the nun singing. Mm -hmm. Um... Usually the nun singing Compline happens at the end of an episode, but we start it with them, this episode. And they're singing uh, Psalm 96. We sing unto the Lord a new song. The the text of the psalm isn't that important. I like looked it up. I looked it up again just right now. But uh, what I my point is Sister Monica Joan is not singing. Hmm. And it, there's a focus on them all singing and Sister Monica Joan not singing. And she is, and then uh, when the toilet freezes, Christopher tells Sister Monica Joan to boil water and pour it down. She takes that as her uh, task. Phyllis asks her to knit a hat for Reggie, and she's like, that's useless work. I'm not going to do that useless work. Uh, And she's very upset about it. Sister Monica Joan, by the way, hates knitting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They keep making her knit. Uh... I think this is not a big thematic thing. It's just a character thing that is consistently she hates knitting. They always make her knit and she always hates knitting. Stop making her knit. Get her to do anything else. She is so much happier. Stop making her knit. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) But uh, Reggie doesn't like the flat cap that he's wearing. Uh, He likes a toque like Barbara has. So they knit him a toque. They ask uh, Sister Monica Joan to do it and she won't do it. She knits and she refuses and uh because she has the important job of thawing the toilet instead and so phyllis knits the toque um so we have sister monica joan through the whole episode like something's wrong something's upsetting her and we don't really explore it Mm -hmm. then the other thing parallel to this the other sister monica joan plot or or theme is she's so happy when Christopher is there visiting. And what she says to Sister Julienne when Christopher is there visiting is that uh, hospitality is important because some, as Saint, as Paul says, uh, the Apostle Paul says, some have entertained angels unawares. And then later, when Val is so upset about not seeing the what was wrong with um or it's not seeing that the baby was alive baby john his his name in the end uh sister monica joan comes to her and says you know god was working and uh val says i don't believe in god and sister monica joan says it doesn't matter <laughs> mm-hmm. uh it was the Lord who went before you, and the hands of the Almighty are often found at the ends of our own arms. And those two, some have entertained angels unawares, and it, the hands of the Almighty are often found at the end of our own arms. 
there's this theme articulated by Sister Monica Joan that uh, God works through you uh, to help the people around you in ways that seem insignificant. Oh, sometimes do seem significant. But that, like, and then the uh, balance of that is Sister Monica Joan doesn't recognize her own lesson in that, like, knitting a hat for Reggie is entertaining angels unawares. Mm-hmm. And I actually really like that she doesn't see her own lesson because the characters, I mean, I feel like the, the Christmas episodes they give extra time to and all the characterization is especially nuanced. That Sister Monica Joan has this uh, spiritual insight but isn't perfect and still has her flaws and her sins and her selfishnesses. And she knows the answer to her own problem. Hmm. And she is able to give it to someone else. Uh, that knitting a hat for Reggie is entertaining angels unawares. And it, the, hands at, uh, the hands of the Almighty are found at the end of your own arms. And it's all connected to, like, one of the big themes of this episode is uh, secrets. But also one of the big themes of the episode and of Christmas episodes in general is like miracles, but miracles performed not only by God, but by the characters. Mm-hmm. Those are really long. I didn't actually expect that to be as long as it was. <laughs> I was just going to, I just had a little thing about entertaining angels unawares, the hands of the Almighty are found at the end of our own arms. But like, I think it ties all together. It does tie all together. Yeah. <sighs> And maybe that ties in with the theme of unwrapping and unfolding is that unwrapping the mysteries of God, un- unfolding the mysteries of God. And as a part of the theme of this show, that yeah. it's not just, uh, it is set at a religious uh, convent on purpose. Yeah. And that there are religious themes all throughout the show. And that what Sister Monica Joan's point, I think, in this episode, or what the point being made through it, Sister Monica Joan in this episode, that is so a major thematic center of the entire show, is that they unfold, you unfold the mysteries of God by unfolding the mysteries of your neighbors. Mm-hmm. By unfolding the mysteries of your neighbor in the, like, biblical sense of the people around you that you love the people that you show god's love to are your neighbors it doesn't have to be your literal neighbor it can be your uh family too Mm -hmm. are your neighbors in that sense and so like secrets hidden things buried things uh are a problem not just because i mean Partly because then the problems don't get fixed, but also because uh, they, I, and because they isolate people from each other, and also because um, it's part of unfolding the mysteries of God, to unfold the mysteries of the people around you that you are supposed to be loving to. Mm-hmm. Speaking of unfolding mysteries, or unfolding, uncovering secrets, Sister Julian visiting Althea and really uncovering exactly what <sighs> happened is 
I don't, uh, yeah, I can hear your voice. You don't want to talk about it. I don't want to either, but it's, so just like, we'll touch on Althea is now foster mother and biological mother to heaps of children. She uh, is, never raises her hand to them. She is, um, basically has moved on so far from her mother that she doesn't want to, she definitely does not want to go to her father's funeral, which is very relatable. I I don't love that Sister Julian asked that. I understand why she did, but I just feel like she she it's not it's not going to be healing for her at all to go to a, the funeral of the man who abused her and raped her, and not only raped her raped her throughout her childhood. It sounds she seems says like. every week. Yeah, every week. And so the baby that she, the pregnancy was her father, which wasn't a hundred percent clear on the first telling of that story that like she was pregnant and ran away. She was pregnant with her father's child when she ran away. It's just horrific abuse. So, I mean, I want to like, we're talking about, and sometimes we do this, we're talking about everything in, in a real, uh. Mishmash order. But I don't want to go too... I don't want to move too quickly past when Sister Julienne shows up at her house and she has, like, five foster kids and they talk about, like, oh, these are the ones I have now. I've had others come by, come through. Uh, Whenever the council comes to me, I say yes. Mm. And that um, she... By the time we meet, by the time we see that, we've heard from her mother that, like, she uh, ran away, and her mother's glad that she ran away. Her father was uh, physically and sexually abusive. Uh, She had a horrible, abusive childhood. Uh, And then when we see her again as an adult, there's every reason to be afraid that she is going to be... uh, cycle of abuse, cycle of trauma. Mm. But instead, she is a uh, safe haven for all these children. Yeah. Um, which, again, is like some have entertained angels unawares. Mm-hmm. And the hands of God are found at the ends of our own arms. And she says to... There's, the religious themes of this episode, by the way, are also really interesting because Percy is our explicitly religious man and he wants the will of God is his will and Althea says she doesn't uh, like what Sister Julianne stands for Uh, that's all they really say about it but the subtext is she is an atheist because her religious father was abusive Mm -hmm. and what Sister Julianne stands for in in the religious life is what her father used as the rationale for his abuse yeah um, and then, like, I'm I'm making sure nobody gets a door shut in their face, is what Althea says yeah. about her. Uh, and then, like... There's this whole thing with the, the money as well, is uh, when she left, she found that there was money tucked into her, like, that her her mother didn't help. She she was the one who didn't let her back in. Yeah. But she so also like, found that... Her, her mother says that she ran away, but she doesn't... She says she didn't run away. 
Yeah. She says that she she was thrown out and she banged on the door to try to come back. Mm -hmm. She wasn't, she didn't run away. She was kicked out by her father. And her mother says she ran away and she's glad she ran away. And just that her mother slipped that money into her pocket to help her run away. Uh, But Althea doesn't see it as I ran away. She sees it as my mother, my mother did nothing to help me when I was there or let me back in. And my father abused me and then kicked me out. Yeah. Sorry. Carry on. And so she did spend the money. And so like this money was, you know, to get rid of her in her mind. And so she chose not to spend it. And it's so old that it's not even currency anymore. Uh, But when we hear it from Mabel's side, that was her escape money that she had pinned inside of her dress all the time. And she gave that up for her daughter. And so from her perspective, it was, I gave her my escape plan so she could escape and she did yeah but mabel still um never did escape never did like she tried to escape percy but she always failed at it well and because it's so uh complicated because yeah from althea's perspective even though she left and made a good life where she is a I mean, as Sister Julianne says, she seems to have so much happiness in her family. She says, I never raised my hand to them, only my voice, and I'm proud of that. And, like, you should be. Uh, We see no hints that her family is anything other than happy and loving. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, in one sense, she totally did escape. But part of the, like, dynamic is because she was kicked out, she didn't escape. Right? Yeah. Uh, Even if she left. And there's this sense of not... I mean, she's angry. There's the sense of not emotionally escaping. But there's even a sense of, like... I mean, um, technically, I didn't escape. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Is still haunting her. Mm -hmm. That I was kicked out. I tried to go back and they didn't let me back. Mm -hmm. And so I did what I had to do for the rest of my life, but technically she didn't escape. That is such a, uh, emotional, like knife turn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then as you say that like Mabel's perceives that totally differently, Mm -hmm. that like Althea is so mad at Mabel because she was there during all her abuse and did nothing to help her and then wouldn't accept her. And what she's doing by taking in all these foster children is not only uh, uh, in counterbalance or response to her father being abusive. It's not just I'm going to be loving and not raise my hand because I'm not going to be abusive like my father. It's also explicitly I'm not going to shut doors in people's faces like my mother did. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she is explicitly living her life to be counter both her parents and Althea thinks of their encounter, their last, like she, I don't think she's misrepresenting or lying. I mean, maybe she's misrepresenting, but I don't think she's lying to Sister Julienne when she says she ran away. She gave her that money that was her escape money. And she is genuinely thinks of it as I did everything I could for her by giving her the money to help her run away. And she did. And I'm glad. Yeah. Um. So in the, 
result of all that, do you think it's realistic or do you like that she shows up at the pantomime and meets her mother finally? I do. Yeah. Here's like you said, I don't think it's good of Sister Julianne to encourage Althea to go to her father's funeral. I basically agree with you. I don't think even for Sister Julianne, and maybe I'm being naive, I don't think that Sister Julianne wanted Althea to go to her father's funeral so that it was her father's funeral. I think she wanted her to meet her mother again. Yeah. Yes, and her I mother's going to be there. Yeah. And I think it was a mis- it's a bad, like, she's not going to go to her father's funeral. Of course not. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think that uh, it's would be, as you say, I don't think it would be good or healing or healthier or uh, good or healing or beneficial or uh, to her to go to his funeral. Um, but I do think that, uh, her connecting again with her mother is good. Mm-hmm. I think there's like, I've heard, um, people, there's like a, uh, perspective I hear recently about, uh, like an anti-forgiveness perspective. Which is, uh, you know, you don't owe anyone to forgive them. It's uh, uh, requiring forgiveness is emotional manipulation. Uh, abusers uh, get away with things because uh, society requires forgiveness. Um, and I don't think any of that is uh, untrue. But I, I do still... Uh, I like... The fact that uh, abusers and society, either um, knowingly or inadvertently on abusers' behalf, can manipulate that for the uh, uh, re-victimization of people, does not mean that the core principle that uh, to forgive is emotionally and spiritually healing is un- is wrong. Yeah. Kind of a roundabout way of saying that, like, the cliche that I don't forgive for your sake, I forgive for my sake, that is a cliche, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, uh, I don't think Althea needs to um, go to her father's funeral or forgive her father. But I do think that uh, she has been holding on to this uh, anger. She says herself, like, maybe I'm not, deep down, I'm not as angry as I think I am. But maybe I am. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right? She's been holding on to this anger towards her mother. And I think that uh, just she has a uh, good and happy and loving and joyful family uh, on her own that is within her own heart, um, a little bit tainted by bitterness, not in the sense that it makes her bad to be bitter, but she's not enjoying it as fully as she could because she's bitter and angry underneath it all. Mm -hmm. And when she goes to meet her mother and she gives her that, the flowers and also the, the dollar back, that symbolically is about giving up that bitterness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think 
I think that's good for her mother, who uh, also was a victim. Despite, like, Althea not, like, she needed, she didn't protect Althea, but also she wasn't protected. But also, like, for Althea's own life, this is a little, uh, like, piece of, uh, like a little stone in the, her shoe mm-hmm. <laughs> that's gone. Yeah, that's so true. The snowdrops are a symbol. Yes, they are. All right, so we need to move on to other bits of this episode, and I think we're through the heavy parts. Let's talk about some of the lighter parts, which is Phyllis's uh, (laughs) conflicts with Sergeant Walrus Face, (laughs) Sergeant Wolf, Uh, (laughs) that the cubs construct their structure for their cub badge and then he's like knock it down it's a it's a hazard and and later on he's like you know oh this this unruly mob about their milk and phyllis like takes control and talks him down and finds a solution and she's just like i love this dynamic is wonderful (laughs) the the igloo is like First of all, okay, that's not an igloo. Oh. But, uh, and, also, they... and also, once again, fake as snow ever. That is definitely not what a structure like that would look like. Yeah. Honestly, I don't think that he's wrong in that that is not, would not be safe. Uh, I encourage my kids to build tunnels like that when I was carefully watching them, but I don't know that it is a smart idea to leave something like that just out when they are done with it. Mm-hmm. Um. So kind of in principle, I can see the safety concern uh, with leaving a thing like that out. But then the moment when they have, they put it in Reggie's voice, that like Reggie's putting things away and he says, the policeman said, do something useful. And then he made us knock our igloo down. Yeah. That's like, no comment on that. He just has that line and they're like, yeah. (laughs) I'm like, it's like... I'm just going to smash fun and yep. happiness and joy and the laughter of children. Uh, that's, that's like... He's such an interesting character because he's the great antagonist for Phyllis. And I'm like, want to see him get his comeuppance. But he's not. There's like a lot of uh, uh, characters... On Call the Midwife, one episode characters who are like, I hate this person and want them to suffer. And I just want him to, like, get, uh, un- take, get the air taken out of him. Yeah. And, I mean, it's playing on a lot of classic tropes of, like, frankly, it feels very rom-com, enemies-to-lovers yeah. situation, that no spoilers and... That's not this kind of show anyway, but, like, the fact that Phyllis and this new man are, are like, at odds feels very satisfying to an audience of, like, I recognize this yes. this genre of show. So this genre of relationship. That's why we don't immediately hate him, as you're, we're like, oh, this is gonna turn around. And they give us little things that, like, you know, he's gruff and tactless, but you shouldn't turn left down that street, and they do get stranded. Yeah, and exactly. That, that uh... Edifice is dangerous, and the milk really can't be going out. I mean, even when Phyllis is like, you have your buckets, blah, 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 but 
you actually shouldn't put milk in buckets because it's unsterilized. Like, yeah. she acknowledges that, like, okay, the actual, in substance, he's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and then at the very end, he, like, tips his fingers to her and well done. And she's like, well, I like a man who can admit when a uh, job is well done. Yes, and exactly. they have a little bit of, they do make eyes at each other at yeah, the end of the a episode. Little bit of a little bit of, like... He acknowledges that she was right, and she's like, well, I do like that about him. So, throughout this episode, at the very beginning, it gets ruined, and then it ends up happening, the pantomime of Jackie Beanstalk. Uh, I will say, from my non-British perspective, I have never, and I don't think I will ever, understand the British pantomime. I do not understand. It's panto, whatever. Like, that they put on fairy tales at Christmas, and there's always, like, men in drag, and it's just, like, they feel very nonsensical. And I did, I love British things. I love British humor, but that, like, over-the-top, like, almost, like, I guess Monty Python-esque absurd, that, like, I just... It does not. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. The, uh, I don't get why it's funny. Why is it? And then it's like, because it's kids and it's yeah. path. It's, it is this weird, like, cross of a Christmas pageant. And a burlesque show. And a burlesque show. Yeah, and so exactly. it's not about, it's not a Christmas story, it's a fairy tale story, but have that Christmas, and Christmas pantos, like, you can do a panto anytime, but, like, Christmas pantos are definitely a huge tradition, and they do them in communities, and the London Palladium does them, and they're, like, a big thing at Christmas, some random story in, with, like, it being done badly as part of the charm. Yeah. But also... And they, like, are singing... What were they singing at the end? Catch Some a falling pop song. Star. Wasn't it Catch a Falling Star and Put uh, It In Your Pocket? No, no, it wasn't. It was something like that. But it was, like... Oh, shoot. We, we might need to look it up because I really need to know what that was. Okay, we looked it up and it is Sealed With A Kiss. Yes! Sealed With A Kiss. Go away for the summer. It's January. Yeah, like, and they're... It's, <laughs> and it's... Uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. Why are they singing Sealed with a Kiss and the whole audience is singing along? And, like, I believe that that's just accurate. That's just how pantomimes work. But 100%. Like, what? what? Why? <laughs> I don't understand. I never will. It's fine. It's fine. It leads to some comic relief. Especially when Trixie is doing Fred's makeup is hilarious. And Trixie and Christopher are the front and back end of a horse or something. <laughs> or a cow. A cow, of course, because Jack and the Beanstalk. Um, they, like, but it also like the seal with the kiss is like a goodbye because Tom and Barbara are leaving. Yes, and I am sad because I love Tom and Barbara. They're gonna be gone. It's only six months, which in Showtime could no spoilers could be a single episode or could be a whole season. Yeah, depending on what they decide to do, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, heck, you could have the next regular episode of the season could be them returning. That's true. That's true. Um. But in world, they're gone for six months, and it's sealed with a kiss, and they're saying goodbye. About pantomime, the other British thing that I, like, get a little bit more than panto, but not really, is Punch and Judy. Yeah. It's like, British people love Punch and Judy, and like, okay, I, I guess. It's, 
Oh, but also, the other British thing that is also a Canadian thing, but apparently is not so much American, is Christmas crackers, the kind where you pull and they explode and you get a little crown, a little joke, mm. and they mention those in this episode that the Christmas... Ugh. The Christmas crackers don't get any better, and I was like, they still don't. Christmas cracker jokes are notoriously the terrible. It. It's the moment, the like, that's a little throwaway joke of a line, but it's also Mabel says, I haven't pulled a Christmas cracker in 30 years. Yeah, exactly. It's the like, uh, Percy's abuse. We like, when we said it before... Not to get back to heavy, but, like, mm-hmm. we said it before that, like, it's revelation after revelation. He's controlling, and then he's physically abusive, and then he's sexually abusive. And I said it, like, gets worse and worse. But let's not downplay that, like, the controlling, making her a shut-in, she didn't pull a Christmas cracker for 30 years. That would be bad enough. If yeah. that was all. Absolutely, that absolutely. That would already be horrible. Yeah. Absolutely. One last thing, kind of outside the show information and inside the show thing. One of my uh, favorite things to spot is when they are hiding an actress's pregnancy on a show. (laughs) And the actress who plays Trixie, Helen George, is pregnant. And they are, they like, Trixie's not wearing her usual tighter outfits in this episode. And I think in future episodes, too, that Trixie... uh, is not pregnant, but Helen George certainly is. And it starts to be like, you just have to like pretend you don't notice because they're doing the standard thing that they do with women on TV all the time of big coats and things to hide. Right. And I personally, that is one of my favorite things to spot on TV shows and be like, this is hilarious so and very obvious. Speaking of favorite things... What was your favorite part of this episode? Oh my goodness, there's so much that goes on in this episode. I think there's funny things and serious things, but I just got a, the baby being revived. Oh, yes. Like, I might have stolen yours just now, but that is my favorite moment, is when the baby starts crying inside Belle's bag, and it turns out that he lives, and Selwyn and Linda get to have their baby. What about you, Paul? I usually, if you say one, I was going to say... I pick a different one, but in this case, I'm not going to. I'm going to say, <laughs> the baby being revived is, like, so emotionally cathartic. Yeah. It's like this huge emotional roller coaster, but, like, it is so heartbreaking, mm-hmm. this stillborn baby, and then the miracle of it being alive, yeah. and what that the way that they don't rush through it and the way that what that means for all the characters involved and bringing it back to uh, maybe the one complaint I have actually about it is that Trixie feels the need to like present it with some dramatic flair to the couple like that wasn't necessary but the like bringing the baby back and them being a family together and all the anxiety about like I'm not going to love him and he's not going to love the baby just like evaporates. Mm -hmm. Doesn't, we don't come back to it at all, nor should we. Uh, Yeah. So not just the moment, but that whole, that moment and everything it means for the rest of the episode. Mm -hmm. I loved it. Me too. If you have a different part that you liked, if you, your favorite part of the episode was watching children dig in the snow without gloves because you don't know that snow is cold, like, maybe that's your favorite part, I don't know, I'm not gonna judge. If you're British and your favorite part was seeing Fred dressed, dressed as a woman, 
because that's the height of humor, you know, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> you can let us know by email, poplar at clockworksacademy.com. You can find us on social media at Poplar Opinion. And you can also talk to us on our Discord channel, which there will be a link to in the show notes to this episode. If you like this show and you want us to keep making it and you want to show your appreciation, uh, give us money. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Legal tender, not ones that you've been keeping for 30 years and are no longer recognized. Uh, You can do that by supporting us at patreon.com slash clockworkscast. Uh, and we would be deeply, deeply grateful. Thank you very much for joining us. I have been Dr. Paul Moffat. And I've been Jan Moffat. And that's just my popular opinion. <laughs>